0: Alright. Well, hey, take your Bibles and uh, open them up to the last book in the Bible, Revelation, beginning of the last book, second chapter. If you were with us last week, we started this series on Paul's, if you want to say Paul, Jesus' letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And we set it up by saying, as we launch as a church plant, we want to know what kind of a church does Jesus want us to be. And that's why this series is called God's blueprints for the church. Uh, That's the the drive behind it. That's the the heart behind it. We looked at Ephesus last week, and we remember you saw Ephesus was a a strong church in a lot of ways, but then they had one glaring weakness, and that is that they had abandoned the love that they had at first. The love, remember the the language there, the love which you had at first have you've left behind. There was so much that was good about that church. Well, we come into the next letter this evening, and that's written to the church at Smyrna, um, Smyrna is not a, a city I don't think any of us would, would say, yeah, I'm, I'm from Smyrna. We would love the, the sound of that. It just sounds kind of icky to say I'm from Smyrna. But it was, a, uh, it was actually a, a good church. In fact, as we read it and as we'll do that tonight, you'll see that this church is doing pretty well. Uh, it is uh, not a church that has any sort of common condemnation to it. It's not a church that Jesus has to confront and say, this is what you're doing wrong. Now, we all know that that doesn't mean that this church was a sinless church, but this was a good church. It was a solid church. The reason why Jesus chose this church to write to was this was a church facing intense persecution and suffering. So all you moms who came here, hopefully this morning you went somewhere and got a a really feel-good message on being a mom and and everything else like that, because we're going to talk about getting ready to suffer tonight. Um, But that's part of it as we think about being the church. And Jesus wants his church ready to suffer and ready to suffer well in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, the letter of the church at Smyrna gives us the blueprints for what that looks like. Uh, we've got slides tonight, so that's a, hopefully a benefit. If you look up here, you'll see this is a map of the region where these seven churches were. And you'll see there, it starts out Ephesus in the, the bottom left, you'll see is one of the, the bigger words there. Then we go up to Smyrna, and then it keeps going up to Pergamum. And then turning right, you've got Thyatira, you've got Sardis, you've got Philadelphia, and then finally you've got Laodicea down there. Uh, at the end, that's the, the, the trade routes. In fact, that's what that's a mount, map of, Roman roads in Asia Minor. So you see the sh- strategic location of all of these churches. They were right there on these trade routes. So, as these letters as were, were dictated by Jesus, written by John, and then sent to these churches, they would have spread far beyond these seven churches. But we're here to look at this second one the second one is the church at Smyrna. Now, what do we know about the city of Smyrna? Well, it still exists today. It's modern-day Izmir in Turkey, and uh, you can see some of the the ruins up there. This was the Agora, the big marketplace. They also had a big temple there, uh, a few temples. Its earliest evidence of civilization for Smyrna dates back to around 1,000 B.C. So, around 1,000 B.C. That's where we can kind of point back to this is the earliest civilization that we can find there. We know it was destroyed by the enemies of Smyrna in 600 B.C., but then rebuilt by a guy named Alexander the Great around 290 B.C. So the city had a a, a pretty uh, topsy-turvy background, a lot of, uh, of destruction and then rebuilding. Well, in 195 B.C., they attached themselves to Rome so much so that they built a temple in the city. And this is going to factor into this letter and into the situation facing the church there. They built a temple in the city dedicated to Rome. So there was a temple, a place to go worship the city-state of Rome there in Smyrna. Well, a little bit later on after that in A.D., now we're in A.D., so after Christ, A.D. 26, they built a temple and dedicated that temple, not just to Rome, but to the worship of the Roman emperor, specifically Tiberius, who was the Roman emperor at the time. So this is what's going on here in Smyrna. It was known for its beauty in Asia Minor. It had a street that went all around the city that was known as the Necklace of Gold, the Street of Gold, that began at one of the temples and wound its way all the way through Aphrodite and Asclepius were some of the the gods and goddesses that were primary gods and goddesses of this town. Uh, Population was around 200,000 people at the time that Jesus was dictating this letter to John, made up mostly of Romans and Jews. Uh, One of the most famous residents that you may have heard of from Smyrna is a guy named Polycarp. Anybody know the name Polycarp? Polycarp lived in Smyrna, and he was thought to be and believed to be, according to church history and in the early church history, a direct disciple of the apostle John, who's writing the book of Revelation as he receives it from Jesus. So Polycarp was one of the most famous residents there uh, and actually was burned at the stake there in AD 156. And so that hints at some of the persecution and the suffering that Christians were undergoing there in the city of Smyrna. Uh, I already mentioned this, but it's in the modern day town of of Izmir in Turkey. But as we think of of the historical context, so that's kind of the the geographical context, who they were, the history of the city, historical context. There was an emperor whose name was Domitian. Anybody know the name Domitian? Remember that name from from history, from school, growing up? Well, Domitian reigned from 81 to 96 AD, and he was known and, and significant Because under his reign, emperor worship became mandatory for all Roman citizens. You had to worship the emperor. So what was involved in that? Well, that meant once a year, you had to go and you had to offer incense. You had to burn incense on the altar to the godhead of Caesar. And you had to swear loyalty or pledge allegiance to Caesar as Lord. And so under Domitian's reign, around 81 to 96, that's right around the time John is writing, or recording or receiving the book of Revelation. So right around the time that Jesus is writing to this church, it became mandatory, a law, that Christians there in Smyrna were going to have to worship the emperor. And hopefully you see that that would have created some problems for the believers there. Well, not wanting to be associated with the the Jews because the Jews had been given an exemption by the Romans. The Romans said, hey, you know what? The Jews, they don't have to worship the emperor. That's okay. The Jews hated the Christians and didn't want to be associated with them. So the Jews ganged up with the Romans against the Christians and began to ratchet up the persecution against the believers there in Smyrna. So I said it was largely Romans and Jews living in the city, so the Christians really had no allies there at all. The Jews hated them, the Romans hated them, and they were forced or required, that is, to worship the emperor. That's the context historically in which we find this church that Jesus is writing to. What do we know about the church? Well, you guys have all read the letter to the Smyrnians. You guys read that one? No, I haven't either. It's not in your Bibles. And so if you're wondering, I missed that one, it's not there. Uh, Paul did not write a letter to the Smyrnians, and so it's, it didn't fall out of yours. We've got Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. You're wondering, where does that fit in there? We don't know a whole lot about this church. It's likely that this was one of the churches that while Paul was in Ephesus for three years, if you go back to that map, it's likely that this was one of the churches that he planted or started while he was based there in Ephesus during his missionary journeys there. But we don't know outside of that much about the church itself well, let's get into the text revelation chapter 2 pick up in verse 8 it says into the angel of the church in Smyrna the angel of the church would have been the pastor of the church the messenger angelos in the greek is what it is is the word there it's translated angel in our in our bibles could have been translated messenger so Jesus is writing to the pastor of these churches so he writes to the, the angel or the passenger, pastor, the messenger of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now let's stop right there for a second. The first and the last. Jesus is introducing himself. Jesus is describing himself. So we should do well to pay attention here. And he says that he's the first and the last. Jesus here is, is making a claim to deity. He's establishing his identity as the eternal one. In fact, if we go to Isaiah 44 verse 6, We read this in Isaiah 44, 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me there is no God. Jesus is writing this letter through John to the church at Smyrna where they are being forced to worship the emperor, and Jesus introduces himself as the first and the last. Guess what no earthly emperor could ever introduce himself as? The first and the last. So Jesus is on the offensive from the word go in this letter to the church at Smyrna. saying, I'm the first and the last. I'm the eternal one, the one who, here it is, died and came to life. The one who died and came to life. Again, this church was facing persecution. Polycarp, after this letter, some 50 or 60 years after this letter was written, was burned at the stake for his faith. And so Christians were dying because they refused to bow the knee to Caesar. They refused to worship these false gods and goddesses. And so Jesus is identifying with them, reminding these Christians who were facing death, facing the threat of of death, and saying, look, I'm the first and the last, I'm the one who has gone before you in death. But not only that, I've gone before you in life. You hear the encouragement as Jesus is writing to these believers saying, look, even if you go all the way to death, know that I've gone before you, and as I rose, you too will come to life. Jesus is writing to comfort them. Jesus is writing to encourage them, knowing where they were. Romans chapter six, verses three through five. Romans six, three through five, Paul writes, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were united with him in his death. He says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Notice that, just as, just like Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. We too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Jesus is much more succinct in His words in this opening to the letter to the the church at Smyrna, but He's saying the same thing there. I'm the one who's died and who has come to life. Reminding them of their union with Christ. Or 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul says, In verses 20 through 21, he says, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection from the dead. Jesus is the firstfruits. The firstfruits was the the offering that was the pledge of everything else that would follow. And so Jesus is the pledge from God the Father, his resurrection, that we too will be raised just as he was raised. Jesus writes to this church and says, I'm the one who has died and who has come to life. He's comforting them. He's encouraging them. He's writing to empathize with them, to reveal himself as their empathetic Lord and Savior. John 11, you remember the story of Lazarus being raised and and Jesus interacts with Mary and Martha there and they say, Lord, if you had only been here. And Jesus says, your brother will live again. And you remember they say, I know, I know he'll live again in the future. And Jesus says to them in response, he says, I... I am, I am the resurrection. It's not just some mystical thought about some force that's going to raise your brother in the future. It's not just some idea. It's not just some doctrine called the doctrine of, a, of eternal life and, and receiving resurrected glorified bodies. No, it is Jesus embodies the resurrection. It is because of Jesus that we have hope beyond death. And Jesus writes to this church and says, hey church, look, I know the, the, the persecution is intense right now for you, but just know that I am the one who has died and who has come to life. And contained therein is the promise that they too also, if they follow him in death, will follow him in life. In this opening, Jesus was calling the saints there in Smyrna to zoom out to get this perspective, to realize that, yes, that the the heat was being turned up against them, but there was was a, a bigger thing going on. The eternal God was reigning. The eternal God was ruling. That the Lord, the the bridegroom of the church, was the one who was Lord over it all, beginning and the end, who had died and who had come to life, and there was nothing that any Roman government could do to change or threaten that. As Jesus was writing to his church to prepare them to suffer or to exhort them in their suffering, part of the blueprints for the church that suffers well is our first point tonight, and it's this. We need to hold fast to a gospel worldview. We need to hold fast to a gospel worldview. We need to remember what Jesus is saying about himself as he introduces himself to this church. That he is the first and the last, the one who's died and the one who's raised to life. Our worldview, if you're wondering about that term, is just that. It's, it's the way in which we view everything that happens to us or around us in this world. It's like our, our glasses. It's, it's the lenses by which we interpret Reality. And so as we put on our worldview as Christians, we put on a a gospel worldview. Fundamentally, at at its its root, we put on a biblical worldview, right? That means that everything that happens in and around us in this world, and and it, it doesn't take long for us to get into the craziness, right? All you need to do is open up a news browser and start to look at what's going on in the world and start to realize, man, this world is a crazy place. Well, we take all of that and we pass it first and foremost through what God's word has to say. We have a biblical worldview, meaning that this book right here, the Bible, informs everything about how we view and interpret reality. But even more so than that, as believers, I would say that we have a gospel worldview. Jesus was reminding these believers in Smyrna as they were suffering, hey, look, I'm the first and the last. Domitian, he's not the first and the last. You know what? There have been many that have come before him, and there will be many that come after him. And, and yeah, he's put some, some hard policies in place, and it's tough, but look, he's not Lord. Jesus is saying, I am Lord. That's a fundamental reality of the gospel, isn't it? That Christ is Lord, that he's Lord over all creation, that he's Lord over our lives. But then beyond that, he reminds them to cling to the hope that the gospel provides for suffering believers, that this world is not it, right? I mean, I can't tell you how many times during COVID, I just my heart broke over unbelievers who had to wake up every day terrified about the day's headlines. How are we going to cope with this? What are we going to do with this? Especially at the beginning when, when we really didn't know what we were dealing with. And there was no hope beyond the here and now. And, and, and then the vaccine was released, and I'm not here to get into that whole hornet's nest right now aside from saying this, regardless of where you fell on that, we all knew people who looked at the vaccine as, that's my hope. This is it. This is going to solve everything, right? Or wearing masks or social distancing or whatever it was. And that was their hope. And it's like, okay, what if you get hit by a bus tomorrow? Your vaccine, your mask, your social distancing, that's not going to help you at all. The gospel worldview gives us hope to be able to encounter whatever we encounter in this world. Whether it's a virus or whether it's the violence that took place in Allen a couple weeks ago. Or whether it's not health related. Really. Maybe, maybe we lose our job and we're sitting there going, what am I supposed to do now? Or maybe it's, we're looking at, at just the geopolitical landscape right now going, this is, it's, it's a little bit unnerving right now. Look, the gospel is what we hope in. The gospel is what we trust in. Jesus is who we put our confidence in. He's the Lord over it all. He's the one that has died and come to life. And because of that, it's not that none of the rest of it matters, but man, none of the rest of it needs to move you off your confidence in Jesus. I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who's died and has come to life. It is undeniably clear that we live in a world that is hostile towards Christianity. Yes. We shouldn't be surprised at that though, right? Because Jesus told us about that back in John, John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20. John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20, if the world hates you, change your doctrine. Is that what it says? No. No? If the world hates you, then try to be more like the world so that it'll love you. Is that what it says? No. He says, if if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, then the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The hatred of the world is not new, and it's not something that catches us off guard. It doesn't catch Jesus off guard. For the majority of our lives, though, this has been something that we've thought about when it comes to closed countries. We said, well, yeah, in China, the world hates Christians. Or in parts of Africa, the world, really, yeah, they, they hate Christians. Or in the Middle East, oh, man, yeah, the world, they hate Christians. And for so long, and especially in this region of our country, we have enjoyed relative comfort when it comes to this concept. But I I hope you feel the tremors of that beginning to change. I hope you you sense that that is uh, maybe something that is, is true of yesteryear, but maybe not the next five years, 10 years, 15 years. we're looking at planting this church in this lampstand, look, we're not here to plant this church in this lampstand because it's easier to be here than it is somewhere else. The earthquake of secularism, that rumble is as loud here as it is in other parts of our country. And it's coming, and it will come. And yet we can't be shocked because Jesus told us it was going to come. When the persecution hits, we can't stand here and say, "What, what did you do? God, what are you doing? This isn't supposed to happen to us. We live in the Bible Belt. We've got to be ready for it. And the way that we have to be ready for it is to anchor ourselves to this gospel worldview. We need to hold fast to the reality that Christ is Lord over it all and that because he's the one that died and came to life, if we have repented from our sins and trusted in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we too, though we die, will raise to life to be with him forever. That's where our hope is. That's what we anchor ourselves to. And so, church, are we ready for it to get worse? I'll be honest with you all. I need you guys to be ready for it to get worse. Pastor Rod and I both, we need you to be able to be ready for it to get worse. Because when the persecution comes, we want you guys standing arm in arm with us, holding the lie. Holding fast to a gospel worldview helps us remain resolved and unmoved by the hostility of the world. Nothing else will do that. If your worldview is buoyed by politics or a bill of rights or a constitution, guys, I got news for you. It's not going to hold up. It's not going to hold up. It has to be anchored to Christ in Christ alone. After his introduction, Jesus turns to the church and commends them or encourages them at least. Look at verse 9. He says, I, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. A repeated theme in the New Testament epistles is the blessedness of the Christians sharing in the sufferings of Christ. The Apostle Paul mentions it in Philippians 3. I won't read the whole passage up on the screen, but at 3, 8-11, he said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Right? Or how about 1 Peter 2, 19. For this is a gracious thing. It's a gift of God, in other words, Peter says there. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. There, Peter says, it's a gift of God for you to suffer. Later, Peter says in 1 Peter two or 121, 2.21, he says, For to this you have been called. Even Now he's ratcheted up another level. He says, not only is it a gift to you, but you've been called to this. For, he says... Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Man, there are some times, I'll just be honest with you, I wish that, that, that God hadn't written things quite the way that he did. So when he says that Jesus suffered for me to have an example to be able to follow in his steps and, and to suffer with him, is what Peter's saying there. When, when we suffer for our faith, we enter into a participation with Christ at a much deeper level. If you have suffered as a Christian, then you understand what I'm talking about there. The intimacy with Jesus, the knowledge and appreciation of Him that increases in our hearts because we suffer for Him as He suffered at such a much greater level for us. Well, this church in Smyrna was suffering. And Jesus identifies two areas in which they were suffering. The first He identifies is the, the financial element of their suffering. He says, I know your poverty. I know your poverty. The the Greek word for poverty is used in one of two ways in in the text. There's two words for poverty in the Greek. One meant you really don't have much beyond the bare necessities, right? So think about being a newlywed. You guys remember being a newlywed? Some of you in the room are newlyweds. And you remember kind of looking at your budget and going, okay, we're going to try to make this thing work and just hope it works out at the end of the week, right? At the end of the month, at the end of the 24 hours in front of us, whatever that looks like. You've got enough for the bare necessities. You've got food in your cupboard, but you're not planning a a vacation to to Europe anytime soon. That's one type of poverty. But there's another type of poverty, which means you've got nothing at all. You've got nothing. That second concept, that that you've got nothing, that's what Jesus uses to describe the church in Smyrna there. This is one of the most opulent cities in the, the region, in Asia Minor at the time. It had the street that was known as the street of gold because of its beauty, and yet the Christians there had nothing because of their identity with Jesus. And because of the difficulty that they encountered for their faith in Jesus. This word for poverty, it's the same word that's used by the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 9. 2 Corinthians 8 9 to, des- to describe Jesus who was, was rich becoming poor. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became rich. Poor so that you by his, there's the word, poverty might become rich. Jesus was impoverished not only during his 33 years of, of life. I mean, Mary and Joseph were not well off by any means. But the greatest demonstration of his poverty came at the cross as he died naked as a criminal on the cross in front of everyone. That's the word that Jesus uses here to describe the plight of the church in Smyrna, But then he goes on and he says, not only is it the, the, the poverty, although he says, but yet you are rich. He commends them as, as truly rich because he says, you, you, you can think of the passages, right? You're storing up treasure where it really counts. Matthew 5 or in Mark chapter 10 where the disciples said, look, we've left everything to follow you. And he said, look, I, I tell you the truth. Anyone who's left anything will receive both in this life and in the life to come reward for those things. And so Jesus is saying, you are impoverished yet know that there's a wealth that you possess that's the true wealth here. But then he identifies the second tribulation, or the second form of suffering that they were enduring, and that is the slander that they were up against. The slander. Again, remember, with the Jewish people there, the Romans had given them an exemption. You don't have to worship Caesar as Lord because they knew that that was going to create a huge problem and there, were enough, uh, uh, there was enough of a Jewish presence there. They didn't want the political upheaval in the, the, the realm. So they gave the Jews an exemption said, you can be exempt from worshiping Caesar as Lord. But the Christians didn't have that exemption. And so guess what the Jews did there? Because they didn't want to be lumped together with the Christians. They didn't want Rome to all of a sudden get mad at them and take away their exemption. So what did the Jews do? They ganged up against the church. And they began to accuse the the Christians there. They began to slander them. It's slander and, and false accusations. And they join in the hostility so much so that When it gets to Polycarp, here's what happened with Polycarp. It said this in one account. When Polycarp was brought up on charges before the Romans, it was the Jews who led the way in denouncing him for defaming the Roman emperor. And when they went to burn him at the stake, it was the Jews who helped to gather the wood, notice this, even on the Sabbath. So Polycarp was burned to death on the Sabbath, and the Jews were even willing to break the Sabbath law to gather the wood to burn him at the stake. This is the environment that the, the believers in Smyrna are up against. That's why Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan there in the text. John eight forty four. Jesus said to some of the Jews standing by, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Think about being a part of this church for a second there in Smyrna. You've got nothing to your name, completely impoverished. And beyond that, You've got people watching and waiting for an opportunity to accuse you, to bring you up on charges, and you've got this looming command and edict that says that you've got to go and worship the emperor once a year. Think you would feel lonely? Think you would feel isolated? I remember when I first went to college, I went to a college out in Memphis, Tennessee called Rhodes College, and I had grown up out here, and I would grown up going to Trinity Christian Academy down in Addison, and I, I was around other believers, and I had a great church that I was a part of, and a lot of just close uh, believing friends that were there and I went to this college and I remember just feeling this intense feeling of, of isolation. I felt alone. I felt like I had no one. When we suffer, it can be an incredibly lonely and isolating feeling. Some of you are, are there tonight. You feel like, man, nobody really knows what I'm going through. Suffering can be incredibly discouraging as we look at what's coming at us. It it, it can be unnerving. It can produce the fear and the anxiety in our hearts. But it's this letter that I think gives us so much hope. And it's this part of the letter that gives us so much hope. Because did you catch what Jesus said there? Two little words that changes it all. He said, I know. I know. Second point is we consider how we need to be a church that suffers well as this. Be encouraged that Jesus knows. Be encouraged that Jesus knows. You know, I I think about, and and I don't know because I have newsflash, I've never been the president of the United States. There you go. In case you were here at the church because you're like, well, I think he was the former president. I never have been. Um, But I think he gets a briefing pretty regularly from people that give him updates on how different areas are doing of the, the country, Right? Again, I'm not not here to talk about a specific president. Pick your favorite president, okay? Just pick one that that was was a president at some point. He had people coming in saying, hey, I need to give you an update. This is how this area is doing. This is how this area is doing. This is how this area is doing. The president didn't know how you and I are doing, did he? In fact, if if you picked up the the red phone and you called the president at the time and you said, hey, hey, president, I just wanted to, to give you an update on what's going on in my life. He'd be like, Why? Why why do I care about that? I've got much bigger things going on. Right? You've got the Lord of the universe in Revelation chapter 2 telling this particular group of believers there in Smyrna at this church and he says, I know. I know where you are. I know what you're going through. I know your suffering. I know your heartache. I know your fear. I know your anxiety. I know your discomfort. I know those two words. It's one thing for somebody to tell you, I, I, I know what you're going through. It's another one uh, thing for somebody to tell you, I, hey, I've, I've been there. I've, I've been where you're at. I've suffered what you're suffering. There's another level still, though, when somebody suffers with you, isn't there? When you've got somebody that's with you in the, in the, the valley, That's that level where you're going, okay, I I don't feel alone because you're with me and you're with me in the midst of all of this. Think about this, Acts chapter 9. You've got the Apostle Paul who at the time is the Pharisee Saul and you remember he's on the road to Damascus and he's on the road to Damascus to go and imprison believers, break up families, see people killed for their faith, right? And that's where Paul is. And what happens? Something happens to Paul. He gets knocked off his donkey and, and somebody shows up. Who shows up? Come on. Sunday school answer. One, two, three. Jesus. Jesus shows up, right? And Jesus says, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Is that what he says? Why, why are you persecuting these Christians, Saul? Saul, why were you there with Stephen when Stephen was stoned? Why didn't you stop him? Is that what Saul says? Or Jesus says to Saul? No. Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting what? Me, me. That's how intimately acquainted with you and your suffering Jesus is, church. That when the bride suffers, the bridegroom suffers. And Jesus says to this church, I know. And in those two little words, he is letting them know I am with you in this. I am suffering as you suffer. I am the one that is being persecuted because you are my bride and I care deeply about you. And that should encourage us As we suffer, it doesn't make the pain go away. It doesn't all of a sudden make things get better, aside from the fact that we know that the one who is the first and the last, who has died and who has come to life, has suffered for us. I know. And if he knew their circumstances in Smyrna, guess what, y'all? He knows yours. He knows yours. He knows where you are. He knows what you're suffering. He knows the fears. He knows the anxieties. He knows the health. He knows... The need. He knows. The Lord of the universe, the God of all creation, knows where you are. Remind yourselves of those things, y'all. Remind yourself of that truth when you're tempted to feel alone and isolated. Jesus knows where I'm at. Remind yourself of that truth when you're facing the reality of of thinking to yourself about your situation and and we begin to get tempted to look horizontally, right? We begin to to get tempted to look horizontally and say, well, but but that's not fair. Remind yourself that Jesus knows where you're at. Or remind yourself when you feel like, man, I'm so angry, I need to lash out. I need to take things into my own hands. I need to get revenge on this person. Remind yourself that Jesus knows where you are and that he will see that justice is ultimately met. Jesus knows. But it's not just that. He, he commends them for that. And then he gives them this exhortation. In the face of the suffering as we go on, he says this. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. In the Greek, this is the strongest negative possible. It's, you remember when Paul said, be anxious for what? For nothing, right? It's the same concept here. Fear nothing is what Jesus is saying. Do not fear. When faced with tribulation, the believer has no exception clause. Yeah, but Jesus, what about fearing this? No, do not fear. Yeah, but Jesus, what if this happens? No, do not fear. Yeah, but Jesus, what about this situation? Do not fear. This is a familiar refrain in Scripture, Joshua 1.9. God is preparing the people to enter the promised land. He says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous and do not be frightened. Or how about Psalm 46? Psalm 46, 1 through 3, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Why? Because we know the God that's on our side, our refuge and strong help. Or Matthew 10, 28, when he says this, do not fear. How about this? Here's no exception clause. Don't fear somebody who can kill you. Okay. So let's start there, and then every other thing that tempts us to fear, we can just... File under, like, is it, are they going to kill me? Even if they are, Jesus said, don't be afraid. Why? Go back to the first point, because we've got a gospel worldview that sees that even if we die, we're going to live. Do not fear. Do not fear. Or Peter, when he says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial. Jesus said, it's going to come. They're going to hate you because they hated me. He goes on, he says, what they're not supposed to fear in verse, uh, chapter 10 and the rest of it. He says, behold... The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. This is where it's helpful to remember that this was a historical church that Jesus was writing to facing a specific set of problems. We don't need to read this and go, oh man, I'm going to be thrown into jail for 10 days coming up. The devil's about to come get me. They're going to throw me in jail. If you get thrown in jail for the next 10 days, notice that you've got a pastor. I'll come help you in whatever way I can, but I don't think that's that's what he's talking about here. For this group... I think that's what was going to happen. And the ink that has been spilled, trying to figure out what does 10 days mean and what, what is the significance and the symbolism behind 10 days. Y'all, here's what I think it means. I think that they were going to get thrown in jail for 10 days. And that was going to be a trial for them. And that was going to be a test for them. And, and yet, notice, even though Satan's the one that's, that's thrown him in, in jail, who's the one that's working his purpose through it? God is. I'm going to see that you're in prison, that you might be tested. Tested towards what end? Maybe that they might come to know this, what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in re- weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses. Jesus was giving them a heads up, the one who was the first and the last. He's saying, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Romans 8 you guys remember this passage? We've quoted it out of, out of context, I'm sure. Other people have quoted it out of context to us, I'm sure. But Romans 8, God's working all things together for what? For us. For good. When these believers were imprisoned, was God working together for their good? Uh-huh. Why? Because what's our good? Verse 29 tells us that we might be conformed to the image of who? Jesus. You see, that's what's good for us. That's why every single thing that happens to a believer is for our good. Because... It's the divine artist with the hammer and chisel in his hand. And he's taken, he's taken the parts off of us that aren't like Jesus. Sometimes that's a violent process. Sometimes that's a painful process. But we can trust that he is doing that. So Jesus is encouraging this church, exhorting them don't fear. Hey, let me tell you this. If you come up to me and say, hey, Pastor PJ, at some point this week, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to come up to you, I'm going to punch you in the face. I'm going to say, okay, thanks for warning me. I appreciate that. And if you tell me, hey, and I'm not going to hit you that hard, but I'm going I'm to hit you in the face. I'm, you can tell me that. I'm still going to brace for impact all week long anytime I see you. I'm going I'm I'm to not want to like, look forward to being around you, right? So just because we know suffering is coming doesn't make it something that we should just be slap happy and grinning about all day long as we walk around. It's never a desired outcome for us. What should it do? It should cause us to get ready. I think that's what he's doing for the church here, and that's what he needs to be doing for us as we consider launching this church and thinking about what might change in the future. We don't know what, what might change, but we need to be ready for whatever might come. And that's our third and final point tonight is this. Steal yourself for the tribulation ahead. Steal yourself. Resolve. Anchor yourself to, to not be moved by tribulation. I, I love a good battle speech in a movie. Anybody with me? Even like like sports movies. Like the movie Miracle, I went to go watch it in the theater with my wife and I, I stood up and cheered and she was like yanking me down in my seat. She's like, it's okay. It happened. It was 1984. It's not happening right now. You don't have to be that excited about it. But how about this one? How about this one? Anybody recognize that guy? Look, I, I'm not endorsing any movies. I'm giving you the pastoral caveat right now. I'm not endorsing any movies right now. Just telling you what gets me fired up, right? And so here, when, when it says, I am William Wallace and I see a whole army of my countrymen here in defiance of tyranny, you've come to fight as free men. And free men you are. What will you do? With what freedom? Will you fight? I fight and you may die. I don't have an accent. Otherwise, i would try to give it to you. Run and you'll live at least for a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom, right? That gets you fired up when you're watching that. You're like, let's go attack the English, right? You're just ready to go. Or or this one's lesser known, but this is Bernard Montgomery. When he was going up against uh, Rommel's African Corps, He said this, Here we will stand and fight. There will be no further withdrawal. I have ordered that all plans and instructions dealing with further withdrawal are to be burned and at once. We will stand and fight here. If we can't stay here alive, then let us stay here dead. Man, I'll fight for that guy, yeah? That gets you excited. There's another one that is probably less familiar with us. Two guys. Latimer... In Ridley, these were were two bishops in the, the English church, two pastors that had held fast to the word of God, preached the word of God faithfully, and under the reign of Bloody Mary in the 1500s, who in four years executed more than 280 men, women, and children for refusing to embrace Catholicism. Latimer and Ridley were two of those. And as they were let out to the stake, because they were burned alive together, says this, as he was knocking in a staple, Ridley took the chain in his hands and said to the smith, the one that was fastening him to the, the, the fence, he said, good fellow, knock it in hard, for the flesh will have its course. So he said to the man tying him to the stake, tie me tight, because my flesh wants to get out of this. A bag of gunpowder was tied about the neck of each man. Wood was piled around them, and the horrible preparations were completed. Then they brought some wood and kindled the fire and laid it down at Ridley's feet, to whom Latimer then spoke in this manner. Be of good comfort, Brother Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle, by God's grace in England, as I trust, shall never be put out. Two men who knew what it was to suffer and hold fast to their faith in Christ. Why all of this talk about a battle cry, a battle speech? Because Jesus gives one here in our passage. You want to know what it is? It's much shorter than that. It's this. He says, be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. That should fire us up as Christians, y'all. That should get us going. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Are we ready for that? Ready to be mocked? Ready to be scorned? Slandered? Are we ready to give without tax benefits? Are we ready to meet underground? Not here because there's no basements here, but you know what I mean. Are we ready to be fined for gathering? Are we ready to be arrested? Are we ready to be tried? Are we ready to be imprisoned? Are we ready to be, if necessary, faithful unto death. You say, well, Pastor P.J., how can I know that? The way that we can be ready for that is if we know the one who's the first and the last, who has died and who has come to life. Because he is waiting finally in verse 11 as we end. As he writes this, he says, "He is the one who has the ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. That's the promise that we have from Jesus, that we will not be hurt by the second death. So we might die the first death here. I knew a sweet lady in Arizona who said, I'd rather fly than die, right? I'd rather Jesus come back for the church and meet him in the air than die. But hey, look, if we need to die here, we know it's only going to be once because of our confidence and faith in Jesus. One more quote just as we end. There was one man, one more man who died in Bloody Mary's reign and his name was John Hooper. And John Hooper was implored by his friends and family saying, "Hey, just, just recant. You don't have to mean it. Just recant. Just deny your teaching and then you can go on and serve. Think of how much ministry you can do and how positive things can be." John Hooper had the, these things to say. He said, "Let us not run away when it's most time to fight. Remember, none shall be crowned such as fight, but such as fight manfully. And he that endures to the end shall be saved." You must now turn all your thoughts from the peril you see and mark the joy that follows the peril, either victory in this world or else a surrender to this life to inherit the everlasting kingdom. This same man, John Hooper, it says, was visited by a friend on the night of his execution, the night before his execution, who pleaded with him in tears saying, consider that life is sweet and death is bitter. Life hereafter might do good. In other words, think of all the good you could do. Just... Deny it. You don't have to mean it. Hooper responded, the life to come is more sweet, and the death to come is more bitter. Church, as we think about being a faithful lampstand here, I don't know what the future holds, but I know this is the battle cry from our Savior. Be faithful unto death, and he will give us the crown of life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for that reality, that promise. We thank you that we have a savior who's the first and the last, the one who has died and come to life, who has gone before us to the grave and gone before us out of the grave. And that gives us the confidence to know that come what may, we can be okay. I know there's a lot going on in the lives that are represented in this room. There's weight, there's anxiety, there's fear. And a message like this doesn't magically make any of that go away. But God, I, I pray that it would be an encouragement to remember that we've got a Savior who knows us and is intimately acquainted with all of our ways and cares about where we are. So God, I pray that we would be encouraged. I pray that we would be a strong church. I pray that as we go throughout the the years in front of us, as long as you would allow us, that we would be a faithful church who withers and weathers, rather not withers, but weathers the storms that come in this world. Allow us by your grace to do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.